following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Continuing working through the prologue here of Mark's Gospel as we've begun this new series here in Mark. While you're turning, I have something completely unrelated and unimportant to tell you. It's always funny whenever I say that. That's when everybody's head pops up. That's what they're interested in. Did anybody else besides our family go to the um, Knott's Island Peach Festival this year? Were you the only ones? Okay. So it's kind of like the Strawberry Festival, but it's the Peach Festival, and it's down in Knott's Island, North Carolina, and it bills itself as being, you know, the peach harvest and all the stuff's going on. You get fresh peaches and peach pies and peach ice cream, and there's stuff for the kids and all kinds of, you know, you know how that goes, those festivals go. So we go down there yesterday, and after, after I saw peach pies, on the website. I was like, peach pies. That's what I wanted, a peach pie. And it was, I was like, we're going to get a peach pie. I even said that to Jamie as we're walking in. That was the only thing I really cared about. So uh, we had been there for a little bit, and the peach stuff was all in the middle, in the middle of the, the fairgrounds, whatever it was, where it was at. And uh, it was mainly the stuff was out front. So all you could really see was, out, was what was going on around the outside, but inside there were people working and doing stuff. And we get a, a barbecue sandwich. We're stopping the, just, it was lunchtime. We were hungry. So we we're looking for a place to eat, and the only place we can find is right here around the peach thing. And so we go up to a table, and we put our stuff down, and we're eating. And as we're eating, we're just kind of watching what's happening inside the peach area, which you couldn't go into, but you could see. And we notice that they're getting the peach pies ready. And here's how they're getting them ready. They are pulling them out of a box that they got from Sam's Club, <laughs> unwrapping them, then rewrapping them with saran wrap and putting them out on the table and selling them for $15 a pop. I didn't get a peach pie. I was most disappointed. <laughs> I'm not paying $15 for a Sam's Club pie. So, peach pies will wait till next year. I don't know why that was in my head, but I thought I would t- share that with you. You're, you're in Mark chapter 1. It was the grape juice. It got the fruity flavor. It got me thinking about it. Mark 1, if you will, look at verse 1. We're going to read these first 13 verses here. Mark's prologue to his gospel. Mark writes this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we're back into this prologue here, back trying to understand who Jesus is. Mark has, has been so kind for us as his readers to let us know up front in this story who this main character really is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. 
And we want to see this in its fullness as Mark opens this up for us and develops these ideas of of who this man, Jesus of Nazareth, really is. Lord, will you help us to see you today? Jesus, will you help us to understand you in ways perhaps we never have before, to see how you are are the fulfillment of everything God had, had ever intended, the Father had ever intended for this world? You are its main character. You are the central focus of all human history. We need to understand that and and believe it and believe it more so that we can honor you the way you truly deserve. And so please be with us today. May your spirit open our hearts and eyes and minds to see all, all that's in this very, very rich passage we ask in your name. Amen. Everybody loves a good cliffhanger, correct? Um, I think the most famous cliffhanger in television history had to occur on March 21st, I had to make sure I got the date right, March 21st, 1980, when two shots and one question ended a television program. Does anyone know what I'm referring to? Dallas, right? What was the question? See, that you all know it. Um, the fact that you all know it is really kind of amazing if you stop and think about how long ago this was. It was one of the premier moments of television marketing history. Right after that, uh, that episode aired, the CBS marketing team went into full force of trying to keep the question of who shot JR front and center in American, uh, the American cultural mind. They were giving out t-shirts saying who shot JR. They were even giving out some t-shirts that said, I shot JR. Um, people were really, really getting into it. It was in you think about it, it was 1980. It's during the presidential campaigns, right? And the Carter Reagan uh, campaigns. Reagan, uh, excuse me, the Republicans got into it by issuing buttons that said a Democrat shot JR. And, and Jimmy Carter got into it by saying publicly that if he knew the answer to who shot JR, he would have no problem financing his campaign because people would pay to find out that information. And that wasn't just him being funny, that was actually true. Larry Hagman, who played JR Ewing, was on vacation in England that summer. And as he was there, he was approached by an individual or a group of individuals, I'm not really sure, and they offered him 100,000 British pounds to answer the question of who shot JR. And that's a lot today. This was summer of 1980, so it was even more back then. He gave them the answer, I don't know who shot JR, only the writers know that, and so he couldn't answer the question or cash in on the offer. Bookies were getting involved, people were placing bets in Vegas, it was a spectacle of the power of the American television industry. And eight months to the day after that episode aired, the question, or excuse me, uh, the answer finally came out. November 21st, 1980, episode, first episode of the fourth season aired, and it was revealed that Kristen Shepard, JR's sister-in-law, had shot him in a fit of anger, and the cliffhanger was no more. Now, you know me and my love of useless facts. Here's a free one for you, okay? Uh, if you ever win Jeopardy, you know the deal. I get a cut if this is the reason you win. The reason Hagman didn't know who shot JR, he wasn't just lying, he was being honest. He didn't know who had shot JR in the story, was because the writers and producers, the people who actually controlled the storyline, had requested that multiple scenes be filmed with multiple characters in the story all shooting JR. And so when he was asked who shot JR, from an actor's perspective, all he could say was, everybody did. All the main characters shot him, but he didn't know from the story perspective who would actually be chosen to carry on the story in the fourth season until the very last minute. So I thought that was neat. We like cliffhangers. But did you know that there is a cliffhanger, a very important cliffhanger, that all of you 
have sitting in your lap and you probably have never thought of before, the Old Testament ends in a cliffhanger, if you think about it. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, that's page number 802, if you're using that Bible in front of you. Since we're on the topic of interesting facts, let me give you another little interesting fact. Did you know that there is no Malachi 4 in the Jewish Bible? They don't call it a Jewish Bible, but give me a, give me a a pass on that one. Did you know there's no Malachi 4 in the Jewish Bible? Their book of Malachi ends in three chapters. And chapter 3 in their Bible is 24 verses long, whereas in our Bibles, chapter 3 is how many verses long? 18, and then we pick up the additional 6 in chapter 4. We've broken this one section. It's the same amount of, of verses, the same passage, but in the English Bibles, we have broken it into two chapters, whereas in the Jewish Bible, it's simply one. And the reason that that's important, and it doesn't matter from a chapter verse point of view because chapter and verse divisions are man-made, they're not inspired, but it does matter that because in the Jewish mind, the, the ideas of chapter three and four go together. It's one continuous thought that shouldn't be separated. Spoiler alert, tuck that away because that might be important later on. But for now, just look at chapter 4. Malachi is the last book written in the Old Testament, both canonically and chronologically. It's written about 400, 430 years before the birth of Jesus. And this is how the Old Testament ends. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. The end. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this passage before, or if you have, if you've ever really given it any thought, but this is a very strange way, if you think about it, for the Old Testament to end. It's a cliffhanger. It ends with this prophecy that Elijah the prophet who has been dead for some time, even in Malachi's day, that Elijah the prophet is going to come and return before the day of the Lord comes, and then silence. No explanation, no commentary, no timetable, nothing. It just ends. And when Malachi writes these final words, much of Israel is still in exile, scattered throughout the nations. Yes, some of the, the Israelites have returned to the, to the land, but they're under occupation. There's foreign occupation in the land. Pretty much everything seems bleak for Israel at this point. And yet here's this prophecy that this day of the Lord is coming that will reward the righteous and punish the wicked, but, but will be preceded by the return of, of Elijah? What? <laughs> You know, how, how is that going to happen? He's dead. What is this day of the Lord going to be? What's going to happen? It's, it's very much a cliffhanger. 
And as Mark begins his story for us, I think that all of those questions are in his mind and he wants to begin to answer them for us. As we saw last week, Mark begins his story with a prologue that is intended to spoil the story for us. The characters who we're going to read about in the story as they interact with Jesus, they're not going to know who he is. He's just some guy from Nazareth, for all they know. But as the story develops, they begin to understand that maybe this guy Jesus is something more than what I'm used to, something more than what I expected. It takes the disciples all the way to chapter 8 to figure out he's the Christ. And it takes the Roman centurion all the way to his crucifixion, to his death, to figure out that he is in fact the Son of God. Mark doesn't want us to wait that long. He wants us to understand right from the beginning who it is we're reading about. And so he introduces all this to us in this prologue. The the prologue begins here in verse 1, what we looked at last week. Verse 1 is both very simple and very profound in that it lays out a concise theological explanation of who Jesus is. He is Yeshua. He is the Savior. He is Christ. He is God's anointed one, and he is the Son of God. He is God come in the flesh to save mankind from their sins. And his story, the story about this man, it's gospel for mankind. And remember what the definition of the word gospel was that I gave you last week? It's not simply good news. It's good news that changes things. Good news that changes everything. Good news that changes the world. But but here's our new question for today. Why is that so? Why is this news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, so good that it is going to change the world? I get that he's God in flesh, come as the anointed Savior, but, but still, why is that so significant? Well, this brings us back to something that I mentioned last week. When I was introducing the prologue to you last week, I gave you a little sentence that I didn't develop in any way, shape, or form. I just said it and kind of moved on about who Jesus is. I said that he is the promise-fulfilling, spirit-anointed, sin-and-death-defeating Son of God. You remember that? It was very early on in the message, and I moved on. The reason I've chosen those terms, those ideas, is because this is what Mark wants to introduce us to here in this prologue. He wants to develop out who this Jesus Christ, Son of God, really is. What is he doing in the larger story of God's plan? How is his coming gospel for all of us? It's it's those descriptions that make his coming gospel. And so what we're going to do today and over the next three Sundays as we work through this is we're going to build this thing out. Mark has given special attention to giving us a prologue that is intended to help us understand Jesus. And we want to we understand him. We want to really get who this guy is. So as we begin reading about his preaching there in verse 14, we know what's going on and why. So today, today we're going to look at Jesus as the promise fulfiller. Jesus as the promise fulfiller. And I want to draw your attention back here to Mark to these first three verses Because they are far, far more than what they seem. Mark opens his prologue with one of his very few references to the Old Testament. Remember I told you Matthew, Luke, and John, they quote the Old Testament quite a bit. Mark doesn't do it as much. But here is one of his few references to the Old Testament. He writes this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now at first glance, this seems 
pretty straightforward, does it not? I mean, if you've read the other Gospels at all, you know that they like to, to often show how Jesus is the fulfillment of various Old Testament promises and prophecy. In fact, Matthew, just in verse, chapters 1 and 2, gives four specific ways in which Jesus' birth fulfills Old Testament promises and prophecy. He, uh, the fact that Mary was a virgin fulfills Isaiah 7.14. That he was born in Bethlehem, fulfilled Micah 5, 2. That he spent time in Egypt before returning to Israel, fulfilled Hosea 11, 1. And that the children of Bethlehem were slaughtered by Herod in an attempt to kill Jesus, fulfills Jeremiah 31, 15. And all of those fulfillments are simply from Matthew's birth story, nothing more. The gospel writers love to show how Jesus fulfilled Old Testament promises and prophecy. And while Mark, I said, doesn't do that as much, that he would begin this way isn't surprising because he too wants us to see how Jesus has fulfilled certain promises. And so he begins with the Old Testament promise. But there are two problems that you need to understand. And these aren't problems with what Mark has written. These are problems with us. Here are your two problems. Make note of them if you're taking notes. Number one, there's a problem that we don't really understand the Old Testament. We don't. We might think we do, but we really, most of us don't really understand it. We're not familiar with its passages. Like, I can't just quote something from, from Zechariah and you'd be like, oh yeah, that's Zechariah 2. That's right, I love that passage. No one would say that. We don't really get its theology or its story even half the time to understand what's happening and where. And because we don't really understand the Old Testament well, particularly like Mark did and like his readers would have done because the Old Testament was their Bible, it's all they had. Because we don't understand it like they did when we come to passages like this here in verses 2 and 3, we, we, we've got a little bit of a problem we've got to deal with. Problem number two, and this is almost bigger in some respects, we don't get Mark's culture at all. Not at all. We are 21st century Americans, and we view the world through 21st century American glasses. So everything we see around us, we see in that way. But Mark is writing, writing in 1st century Mediterranean, Roman glasses. His readers are reading his, his writing through those same glasses. And so we have to bridge a gap as we come to passages like this and try to dig in and understand what is going on here and why is Mark doing what he's doing. Let me show you what I'm talking about with these problems with what would seem to be an obvious question. Look at verse 2. Answer this question. From which Old Testament book does Mark quote in these opening verses? Ooh, but he says Isaiah. Isaiah, right? No? Yes? No? We got a little issue here. Because as was just noted, he's not quoting just from Isaiah. He's actually quoting from two, probably three different passages of Scripture written by two, probably three different authors in two, probably three different sections of the Old Testament that were written over two or three different time spans. He's clearly quoting from Isaiah 40. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's also quoting from Malachi chapter 3 with maybe just a dash, a pinch of Exodus 23 mixed in for flavor. Okay, Three different passages potentially, definitely two, probably three. He's putting all of that together into one passage and he's attributing it to only one person, to Isaiah. Are you confused? Okay. You're confused, and so was I, because of the two problems that I, I mentioned just a moment ago. 
because we don't really understand the message of the Old Testament, because we don't really get Mark's culture, we don't really understand what's going on here. But if we can answer those questions, if we can come to understand those problems and and fix that in our minds, then guess what? It's going to make perfect sense. Let's do that. Let's address Mark's culture first. I think we need to start here to really get the second one. But in Mark's day, people did not view quotations like we do today. Okay, just a blanket statement. They just didn't. We're pretty gung-ho about quotations in our world. We're so gung-ho about quotations in our culture that we've built entire punctuation systems around how these things are handled. Okay, if you're going to start a quotation, you've got to have the two little upside-down apostrophe marks put together here, and then there they can be the right side up on this end. And in between those, those quotation marks, we have to exactly represent what was said or written by the author or speaker. Now, if you want to insert a comment, maybe, to clarify something, make something a little more clear, you can do that. But what do you have to do around your comment to show that it's not part of the quote? Brackets, right? You have to put brackets in to, to show that what's said within the brackets isn't ours. We're so concerned about being precise in quotations that even if an author or a writer misspells something or misspeaks something, we have to accurately represent the mistake. We can't even be like kind and fix it for them. And, and if you're embarrassed about accurately representing the mistake, what can you put in brackets to show that it's not yours? Sick, okay? Which is Latin for thus was it written or thus is it written. So that way you can prove to everyone, hey, look, I'm not a bad typer. I, it was him. I'm just doing what he said. We're, we are gung-ho about quotations in our world. But, but guess what? Mark's culture was a bit more laid back than us. As long as you accurately convey the thought of the author or speaker, you were good. You may not have gotten his or her words down perfectly, but as long as you were kind of in the ballpark, that was considered to be good enough. And you could even mix and match authors and and quotations that go together as long as you did it accurately. That was what was important. It wasn't a big deal. It wasn't considered wrong. It wasn't considered inaccurate. Everyone understood what was happening. It was totally, totally fine. And what Mark is doing here represents some of how his culture just understood quotations. He, he's putting together different passages into one and attributing it to just one author. And that makes total, total sense in his world. He's representing everything correctly. He doesn't record anything incorrectly. It's all the right ideas. He's putting them together in a certain way for his larger purpose. And the fact that he attributes it to Isaiah is, I think, simply because Isaiah is the biggest portion of of his quote. Okay, It's the the largest section. So he's going to give him credit instead of saying, well, this is from here and here and here. Compacts it, simple, smooth, quick, get it in and be done. So while it may seem strange to us from our modern perspective to, to see him do this from his perspective, everything was totally fine. They would consider this an accurate translation, or excuse me, accurate quotation and so should we because, it's get, because of its purpose here in the prologue. We also need to address our understanding of the Old Testament, which is, as I already noted, deficient. The question here is, why did he choose to put these passages together? Was he like at home going, yeah, that was good. Oh yeah, it's another good one. You know, is this, is this the method by which he's taking different passages and, and making them one or Is it possible that somehow these passages were chosen because of some larger purpose? Well, to figure that out, we need to go back and look at each of these passages to see why they were chosen. So let's begin with his quote here in Malachi 3. That's where he begins. Wait a minute. 
Isn't that interesting that he goes to Malachi 3? Remember what I told you at the beginning? How in the Jewish mindset there is no Malachi 4. 3 and 4 go together because it's one continuous thought. He begins his gospel by taking us to the end of the Old Testament. To the beginning of this passage about this coming day of the Lord. It, it's, it's what he has in mind as he begins to tell the story. And to me, the fact that Matt, Mark begins his quotation from this very passage signifies that he wants to fill in the cliffhanger that the Old Testament left us in. The story that he's about to begin is going to pick up where Malachi left off. So let's see how Malachi 3 begins. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you should go back and read the entire context, Matthew 3 and 4, we can't today for time's sake, but I'll just make a few quick observations and then we'll move on. One, who is speaking here? It's God. God is speaking here. Number two, who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to his people, right? He's speaking to Israel. Three, what is he telling them that he's going to do? Well, he's telling them that he is going to send a messenger to prepare the way before who? Who? Himself. God is going to send a messenger to prepare the way before himself. In other words, God is coming. The Lord is coming to his temple. Think back to what we read in, in Malachi 4. God is going to come this glorious day of the Lord. It's going to be glorious for some and not so glorious for others. But this is the purpose of what's going on. That the day of the Lord is coming. God's going to come to his people. And by the time you get over to chapter 4, you realize that this messenger who he's going to send to prepare the way for himself is none other than Elijah. And so this entire passage, this cliffhanger passage that, that ends the Old Testament is the one Mark chooses to begin this quotation. But, but it is a little different, what Mark wrote is a little different than Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. That's because a lot of scholars think he's sprinkling in a little bit of Exodus 23 as well. Look at Exodus 23.20 20 here with me. This is Moses recording words of God spoken to Israel and he writes, Behold, I send an angel before you. It's similar. See the similarity? I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Again, let's just stop and observe a few quick points. Who's speaking here? It's God again. God is speaking. Who is he speaking to? Again, he's speaking to his people, he's speaking to Israel. This time, God is again sending someone before someone else. The word angel here can mean messenger, but this is a special word. This is the Old Testament word that was used to refer to the angel of the Lord. Are you familiar with that guy? This enigmatic character that shows up at different points in, in the Old Testament that many people believe is either God the Son or God the Spirit in Old Testament form doing things on behalf of God in the situation and the people uh, that whatever's happening at the moment, this angel, he says, is going to go before Israel to guard them and to bring them into the land, but they must obey him and not rebel against him. And, and the reason that people think that Mark is sprinkling this in is really because of some of the words he uses. In, in Hebrew, this is, I send my messenger before your face, which is how Mark quotes it in his passage. Uh, 
I send an angel before your face. Malachi doesn't say it, Mark does. And Mark seems to be combining some of the thoughts of, of each of these two verses in his opening section. But, but the big one, the big one you need to see is the last one, which is Isaiah chapter 40. Look at Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. A voice cries, a nondescript voice at that. He doesn't say who it is. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, a few very quick observations. Notice that this is simply a voice speaking this time, not necessarily God. It's a voice speaking a specific message to Israel. In the wilderness, he says, a way is to be, be prepared. A straight highway in the desert is to be made for God. And this idea of preparing the way for God's coming is that everything that's wrong needs to be made right. The rough places need to be made smooth, the, the valleys need to be raised, the mountains lowered, everything needs to be made ready. Why, verse 5? Because the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And all flesh is going to see it. Why? Because the Lord has spoken. In a way that's very similar to Malachi, Isaiah is here proclaiming a coming of God's glory that his people need to be prepared for. Now, Go back to Mark, and that was very quick, I apologize, but for time's sake it had to be. Go back to Mark and see how he puts all of these thoughts together. Mark writes, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Three questions. Who's speaking? Not a trick question. It's God. It's exactly what you saw in the Old Testament passages. God is, is speaking here consistent with what we saw in the context of these other three passages. Number two, who is the messenger? Well, we have to assume that since he's quoting this passage from Malachi 3, the messenger that Mark is here referencing is Elijah, the one whom the Old Testament said would come. Uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. Number three, and most importantly... Who is God speaking to? When he says here that he is going to send the messenger before your face to prepare your way, who is he making the promise to? In Malachi and Isaiah, God is making promises to who? To himself. Is that the case here? I think it is. In verse 3, he clarifies whose way is being prepared. It's the Lord's way. The way of the Lord is going to be prepared. God will send his messenger before the Lord's face to prepare the Lord's way. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the Lord's way, make his path straight. Do you, do you see what's going on here? God is making a promise to himself. That's not normally how we think of God's promises. But that's what he's doing. This means that the beginning of Mark's gospel is seen by Mark as being the fulfillment of a promise that God made to himself. In other words, he sees the coming of Jesus as being the fulfillment 
of God's eternal plans. That's what we often call God's promises to himself. They're his plans. Jesus' coming is the beginning of the fulfillment of God's eternal plans for this world and for his people. That's that's why he's put this quote together the way he has in verses 2 and 3. He's not just giving us an example of how Jesus fulfills some specific detail of, of prophecy like Matthew did. Matthew's like, well, he's born in Bethlehem because of this. And he he goes to Egypt because of this. And he's born to uh, to a virgin because of this. Those are specific details, and they are important. Mark says, no, 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 no. More important than all of that is that you understand that his coming represents the fulfillment of what God had intended to do before the world began. More important is that you understand that Jesus' coming is the fulfillment, the pinnacle of God's eternal plan. That is why he himself is the good news. Not a detail of his birth, not a detail of his death. He himself is the good news, the pinnacle of all of God's plan, the central figure of human history. Now, that plan is going to include a lot of things, a lot of details. Every, which, every bit of which will be fulfilled. It's going to include the sending of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. Who's this guy? I guess we'll find out next week. It includes the revelation of God's glory to all mankind in the coming of the Lord. His glory will be revealed, remember, and all flesh will see it. How is that going to happen? It must be tied to this guy. And it concludes the, includes the fulfillment of of many other prophecies and promises and plans that he has made throughout the course of biblical history. Verses 2 and 3 are Mark's way of showing us that the story he's about to tell us about this man Jesus is going to change the world forever because it's the fulfillment of God's plan to draw his people to himself. God is coming to draw his people to himself in the person of Jesus. That, my friends, is the real significance of what this was all about. In this act, we are remembering a very human thing, eating, right? We, Jesus came and ate with his disciples, a last meal that we commemorate, and we're told that a day will come when we will eat with him again. But eating is not the focus. Do, do, you, do you understand that? It's not the focus. What's the focus? It's the communion It's the fellowship, it's the relationship part that is really the focus here. The relationship between God and man has changed forever because of the coming of this man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His coming is the fulfillment of many promises, but the most important promise he fulfilled is the eternal promise that God made to himself to redeem a people for himself, to know, love, and enjoy him for all eternity. Now, How will God do this? Um, Who is Elijah? How will we identify this one for whom Elijah prepares the way? How can Elijah prepare the way? That's a huge question. How can we know that this one whom Elijah is preparing for really is the Lord and that he can really do the things that God promised he would do in this coming day of the Lord? And how will this one reveal God's glory for all of us to see? Those are Great questions. You gotta wait till next week because we're gonna end in a cliffhanger. Let's pray. Jesus, we we see here, even in, in the way Mark has opened that this story is not just a story, it's it's a culmination. It's a beginning. 
It's the beginning of the fulfillment of your eternal plans and promises that you made to yourself. That's how sure they are. You are sending your messenger to prepare your way, not not ours, not, not the messenger's way. The focus is on you. And so even at the beginning now, Mark has helped us see that, that Jesus' coming is not about us. It's not about us. It's about you. It's about changing this world because you chose to do so. It's about, it's about taking steps, actions, making decisions on Jesus' part, not because we're so worthy, but because you have chosen to do it. The focus has been placed in the proper location by this opening passage. And we are thankful because we are so selfish, so self-centered that it would be easy for us to, to think that it's about us. That this story that Mark is going to tell is, is really about us. Well, it certainly benefits us. We understand that and we thank you for it. But ultimately, it's about you and your faithfulness and your plans. And so, God, we, we come now and we worship you. We, we, we stand here, we sit here in awe and reverence that you are so sovereign, so powerful, and so loving that you would carry out this plan for our benefit. Jesus, thank you for, what, for who you are and for what you have done. And as we continue working through this to see how Mark develops who you are, will you give us an understanding of yourself that we have never had so that as we read what you're doing in the story, we can just constantly be amazed that God in flesh, the anointed Savior, the promised fulfiller has come to set us free. Jesus, thank you for this passage. Please use it in our hearts this week in your name. Amen.